thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bogamo and Dr. Kim Fenton. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bogamo, and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. The first two being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best with your eating. To help me today, as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow co-host, Kim Fenton. Hey, Kim, how are you going? Good. Thanks, Paul. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Now, topic today is regards headaches. Tell me a bit about your history of headaches. Well, I've had a few, like anybody, and I guess this this next topic that we're going to talk about tonight makes me think about whether there are things that I can do to prevent them or improve my chances of not getting them. So, yeah, it should be interesting. Excellent. Our expert today is Dr. Damien Christoph. Damien's a nutritionist, naturopath, and chiropractor with over 20 years of experience. He has extensive media experience with TV on New Zealand's Downsize Me that premiered on Channel 7 in 2014. Radio-wise, he's been the health expert on Melbourne's top-rating drive-time show, The Rush Hour, with James Brayshaw and Billy Brownless. And with podcasts, he's the co-founder and co-presenter of both The Wellness Guys and 100 Not Out. He has done an extreme number of podcasts. I think we were saying before, Damien, I mean, we've, we've cracked our 50 or over 50, about mid-50s now, and you're, uh, whereabouts are you now in your vicinity of podcasting world? You're... 600 plus. 600 plus, yes, right. There you plus. go. Yeah, so there's a bit of a frequency difference between us. But Damien also runs the Power of Food. He, he does everything. That's right. He does it at a high level. Damien also runs the Power of Food and Cracky Stress Code seminars around the country. And above all, he's a damn good bloke. Hey, Damien, how are you going? Oh, burger. Seriously, mate, I've never heard anybody make neurology sound exciting. But you did before that little intro. I was like, <laughs> I was rocking backwards and forwards <laughs> away from the mic, and that uh, was great. Kim, it's great to meet you, Berger. Thanks for having me back on. It's really uh, an honour and a privilege to be back on your show after 55 episodes. <laughs> Look at you go. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Damien. <laughs> you know, Berger, I've had one headache in my life, maybe two headaches in my life, and that's it. Okay, right. That's pretty good. That's yeah. a pretty good number, a very low number. Yeah. Mm. When was that? Yeah, that's very know. interesting. So what makes you get involved in this kind of thing if you're not uh, familiar with the suffering of it? <laughs> well, you know, I think when you see lots of people who have had headaches, you kind of empathise. I think anyone who's had some degree of suffering or any practitioner who's been in practice for long enough has empathy for their patients. You don't necessarily have to have sympathy, but empathy uh, goes a long way. So just the acknowledgement that somebody's going through something that's not nice um, it drives me to help people out. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that I've had to experience it. Like I've never experienced period pain in my life, but uh, I've been able to help out heaps of people, particularly women with period pain. So uh, that's <laughs> that's usually, you know, the way it goes. You don't have to experience it in order to want to be able to help people with it. Hmm. Good. So then, what what's the difference between your functional approach versus, say, a medical approach? To looking at the overall body when you're looking at the experiences that your patients have. Yeah, that's a great question, uh, and I think that uh, that that opens up a big Pandora's box of I suppose the approach to which, as chiropractors, nutritionists, and naturopaths, we might approach someone with a headache. 
um, or some kind of pain within their body versus an allopathic model that goes, oh, you're in pain, let's block the signal. Um, there's a really big difference there. You know, so let's look at the medical approach uh, at, a, at a headache. They'll determine whether or not it's a dangerous headache, whether it's a thunderclap or whether it's um, something that's come on suddenly or if it's the worst pain someone's ever experienced in their life or they woke from it rather than with it. They'll be asking those sorts so quality of the headache. Um, they might even like try to consider whether or not it's a migraine because migraine is, is, of course, still a headache, but it's you know quite an extreme um, you know dysfunction of the nervous system and the vascular system, which I'm sure Bergen will explain later on. I don't really understand all of that, but I know that whether or not that's you know a serious issue, and uh, and then if it's not a serious issue, they're obviously not going to do any more scanning or interventions or anything like that. They'll just block the pain somehow. So they might give some. Um, analgesic, you know, interventions just to block, you know, the sensation of pain in the brain and sensation of pain in the brain and, and let you go. And that's about it. You know, that's that's about all that happens. Whereas from a, a chiropractic perspective, obviously we're looking from a functional uh, movement perspective in around the spine, uh, particularly the cervical spine, the occipital or atlanto-occipital junction. We're looking at that. We might be looking at the cranial bones, temporomandibular mandibular joint, could be considering sinuses or sphenoid. We'll be looking at all the, you know, the cranial bones in and around the face, and so we're, we're considering, you know, from a nutrition perspective, we could be considering, you know, uh, deficiencies um, of say minerals, simple, simple minerals like magnesium, for example, or maybe low blood sugar levels, or possibly even a calcium insufficiency. So we might consider that all those things could will be involved in it, um, even the extent that hydration might be involved. So we consider a lot more um, than, say, just trying to block the symptom. We look to identify the cause. Oh, gosh, there's a lot to look at, Ben. Where do you start? Well, I think, you know, taking a, a good thorough case history, trying to understand the, you know, the the length of time that somebody's had this issue for. Is it something that's just started or is it something they've had for a long time? And then maybe asking some questions around, you know, posture, sleep, mood, um, energy, you know, potentially also looking at diet, um, history of cramping or history of other symptoms that might be associated with a headache. Um, and then, you know, when you when you look at the diet, you're kind of looking for, you know, food-based triggers that could be involved in, um, in, in you know, in common, you know, common presentations of headaches. And Damo, you know... So that's what I'd be looking at. And there you go. go. Burger, no, you go. no, you go. You go. You go. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you might also look at things that have worked in the past. So you might, you know, be considering, you know, what's worked, what hasn't worked and uh, and kind of, you know, look at what else was changed or adapted at the same time. You know, did, did somebody try and might have caused malabsorption? Uh, 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 and so expensive magnesium that you could ever find um, and the best, most bioavailable source or form of, of magnesium that you could ever find. FODMAPs or maybe they've got a gluten thing or maybe there's a, you know, something else that maybe is, you know, contributing to um, maybe there's an inflammatory bowel disorder that's going on too. So there's many things to consider when you're trying to work up somebody's picture. And Dan, when you look at it from a perspective of your practice and you've got other practices that you work around in your area too, so when you've got this sort of situation with different sort of presentations, how do you sort of manage it in a multi sort of layer level? Do you cross refer with other practitioners I mean, you're you know you're doing your chiropractic. You've mentioned some of the nutritional triggers. How do you manage the whole the whole management regime? 
I think burger for me, I'm... Uh, can I call you burger? Is that all right? You can call me whatever you like, Damo, because you will do whatever you want. <laughs> Thank you, darling. I it's too late now. Anyway. Thank you, darling. That's so, right. I'll call you whatever I want. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, that's, that's a great question. I've had naturopaths and nutritionists working in my practice with me, and as a naturopath and nutritionist, um, I've got ideas on what I think things are, and I think as I've been, I suppose... I'm more exposed to more people with, you know, different kinds of presentations, I'm less likely to prescribe supplements and more likely to look at other lifestyle interventions that that might be, you know, the cause of what these problems actually are. So, you know, I don't believe that people are necessarily all deficient in one particular mineral or one particular vitamin because they've got a headache or a migraine. So I, I suppose I ask questions, you know, in my consultations first um, and I like to kind of triage it. So I like to go from a chiropractic perspective, working really well from a chiropractic perspective, um, before then we look to identify other causes outside of um, the spine of the nervous system. You know, my firm understanding of and my firm belief around uh, most um, headaches is that they're mainly cervicogenic in origin and, and potentially, you know, that, that could be, you know, in my in my experience, you know, greater than eighty percent of all headaches come from the neck, is what I've seen. So uh, we can change diet, we can change nutrition, we can do all those sorts of things. But if we don't rule out the most common causes of a of a headache or dysfunction of the cervical spine, then um, you know, what are we what are we really doing? We could just be changing someone's lifestyle for no real benefit. We could be getting them to spend hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars on supplements that might not work at all. Um, so we've got to clear out what might be a, uh, a neurological block or a neurological influence, um, in which case chiropractic comes in incredibly handy there. It's really fascinating, Dan. Once Dad. you've done that, go, Paul. I was just going to say, just on top of that, you know, it's really fascinating. Over the last 30 years, we've got this international headache classification um, criterion, and, you know, the cervicogenic headache is only now starting to get its sort of um, – representation really in the last say really probably five to ten years i mean before that it wasn't even recognized as a possible cause it's it's really interesting to see how there's been a switch that's been happening now and people are starting to recognize that other you know in the non-chiropractors and with our neurology education seminar coming up we've got some different practitioners and who are also seeing that hey the cervical spine is really closely related to headaches and um and opening that door of uh, a possibility but you know often medically it's not seen as anything that's been impossible yeah, well, I mean, we know just by looking at a brief history of medicine. Um, it's interesting. I'm looking, I'm looking at Kim's T-shirt. It says, youngest child, the rules don't apply. And um, and that's exactly the same as medicine because they are the youngest child in terms of healthcare, and the rules quite clearly don't apply. Um, so, you know, we look at Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, chiropractic, homeopathy, all of those, um, you know, care-based health uh, professions have been around for such a long period of time um, and have in them uh, an approach to caring for the patients in such a way that, um, you know, that incorporates so much more than just a symptom picture uh, and, and looking for a cause and identifying a cause. You know, medicine for such a long time has ignored um, the wisdom of many other therapies, uh, you know, to the extent that they never, you know, acknowledged that irritable bowel syndrome existed. They never acknowledged that, 
um, low blood sugar could actually take place. They didn't acknowledge um, that FODMAPs might be an issue. They never acknowledged that gluten sensitivity existed outside of um, celiac disease. Um, and they wait too long for science. And, uh, and so instead of actually using science to ask better questions, they ask science to prove stuff. And that's like asking a parliamentarian to stay in parliament for a full term. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> you can't ask science to prove stuff. It just doesn't work like that. Science should only get you to a point where you ask a better question. Um, and unfortunately, um, medicine relies too heavily on science and not actually on the judgment of the practitioner, in my opinion. And, uh, and so as a result of that, you know, if somebody says, don't go to see a chiropractor in the first year of university, many of these people would say, don't ever see a chiropractor. And, and that's kind of where it's perpetuated. It's, it's come from the first year of university, medical students are told not to refer to chiropractors because they're dangerous. And so as a result, there's no further research into that um, down, you know, down that route from a university perspective. And, um, and so we have to then wait for the proof to come out. Um, regardless of millions of satisfied patient experiences. Very interesting, very thought thought provoking, Damien. And um, I suppose it's you know your experience in practice over twenty years, you've you've seen that that pattern change. And uh, you know, there's have you seen any sort of positivity in regards, a bit more collaborations though? Do you think, or was it a pattern that's sort of continually the same? Do you think, in regards to relationships? Oh, I, I think, I think, um, I think. There are, you know, you do, you definitely find um, medicine and general practitioners in, you know, like individually, there's some absolute champions out there, like really great individuals who are open minded and prepared to have proper conversations. But, um, you know, I suppose as a profession at large, they're, they're quite skeptical um, of what other people might be doing for patients. And, and that's, I suppose, a big shame rather than being collaborative. They're quite skeptical and reserved. And some people call that conservative, but I actually almost consider that to be negligent. Um, conservative is wise, but, you know, you should still be asking questions rather than dismissing it. Um, I still have situations where we um, want to see a GP and they've dismissed the idea that chiropractic could be of any benefit to them and or nutrition might be of any benefit or uh, a supplement might actually assist them. Uh, and so that concerns me a lot because they, these people may never have um, experienced chiropractic had they listened to their GP or their medical professional. So um, there's some really great collaboration. I've been working with some neurologists and spinal neurologists and uh, spinal neurosurgeons, um, anaesthetists, uh, working with you know some really great specialists in in the area of medicine, and and where their expertise comes in, we work together, and where my expertise work you know comes in, we, we work together. So, I think there's there's room for it. It's just that as a profession, um, you'd have to say that uh, medicine's lagging in the acknowledgement and the respect for other professions that are involved in healthcare. Kim, from a consumer, I was going to say, Kim, from a consumer perspective, it's. There's a lot of choices out there, isn't there? And sometimes that's the other side of the coin too, trying to see who, do, who does the consumer see when there are so many different professions and so many different options and um, choices. What do you think? I think that there's a lot of choices, which leads to a lot of confusions. So I think the issue is not with the choice but with the confusion that that generates because there are many different people that you can go and see for any particular condition and somebody's saying, um, don't go and see so-and-so, which is what Damien's saying, and people are, are sort of not valuing each other's 
perspectives. And so as a patient trying to get the right advice, it's difficult to know who to trust, who to believe and who to seek out. You've got everything from chiropractic, uh, physio, osteo, general practice, Chinese medicine, and it all gets very confusing. There's acupuncture, there's all sorts of things, and it all does get very confusing for the patient. That's a great point. It's so disappointing, isn't it, Kim? I um, I really feel for the patients in that regard because you shouldn't. it shouldn't be that difficult. In an integrative medicine approach, um, we're in an integrative environment, would have someone who might triage that and respect all professions for what they can actually um, offer. So the understanding, the true understanding of someone who's the gatekeeper to healthcare would be that they would acknowledge the benefit of chiropractic, they'd acknowledge the benefit of osteopathy, they'd know where physiotherapists fit in, um, that you know, that respect and understand that Chinese medicine has a place, um, and that acupuncture is hugely beneficial. You know, that they'd, they'd look at all those things um, instead of the immediate. Um, writing of a prescription because that's the that's what's in their toolkit. Mm. So you obviously have a lot of people coming to see you for certain things. So if we're talking about headaches tonight, you yep. would have eliminated the, the you know the eighty percent cause, so to speak, that you were discussing before, and sure. you might get down to think things like the deficiencies or the nutritional factors and so on. Yeah. And you were saying that you know getting headaches is not necessarily due to one deficiency. It could be due to a number of things. Is that the same for nutrition as well? What are are the most common factors in nutrition associated with headaches? That's a great question, Kim. And I think it's it's almost difficult to say that there's just one thing um, or even there's a common thing because quite often there's a multiple uh, a multitude of things that might be insufficient or deficient in someone's either their lifestyle, their diet, um, or even from a nutritional perspective, um, the macronutrients or the micronutrients that people are getting into their body. So from a micro micronutrition perspective, and when we say micronutrients, we're talking minerals and vitamins we look at things like b vitamins we look at things like magnesium we probably look at things also like calcium and in many cases uh, we consider whether or not somebody's uh, diet uh, supplies those micronutrients uh, whether or not their diet's rich in in vegetables or rich in good quality proteins you know a lot of people's diets these days are very highly processed and um, rich in calories but very poor in um, micronutrients. And so they might have plenty of macronutrients like plenty of carbohydrate or plenty of protein or in some cases plenty of fat but maybe quite nutrient depleted um, just in the way in which it's been processed. And so that, that can be a big problem. But then we might also find um, that somebody's having a very rich diet and as a result their their bowels may be moving faster than what you, you would otherwise want. Um, they could have diarrhea, you know, that's persistent. They might have um, undigested food coming through in their stool, and and they're really clear indicators of malabsorption. And so then we start to consider, you know, what might be causing those malabsorption issues. And so that, you know, then probably lends weight to some further investigation, um, whether it be a stool analysis or stool sample, whether it be a breath analysis. We might look at that. Uh, we we might might just consider looking at a diet diary and going, you know what, let's just have a look at your diet and see if there's anything that's glaringly obvious that could be contributing to this. And um, and, and, and quite often people are already familiar with what is their trigger. So you say, well, what do you know that triggers? And they might say, oh, look, you know, if I drink red wine, then I'm definitely going to get a migraine. Um, or they might say, you know, if I, if I drink uh, red wine and I have some chocolate, then that's really going to set me off. Some people might say I have white wine or if I, you know, 
eat lemons, then that might be the thing. So, you know, people have different experiences. Um, Are they, there's some common ones. Like, for instance, the red wine one is actually, I think, quite common. Yeah. What are the causes of those and how can you advise people when it comes to those really common things? Well, there's often symptoms that occur uh, at the time of the consumption. So it might be, you know, puffiness under their, their eyes. It could be that they get itchy back of the throat. It might be that they start to feel really, really dehydrated and they need to drink more water, um, but they ignore that and drink more wine. So, Or it could just be that they drink so much wine um, undiluted. So if we go to cultures around the world that seem to successfully consume wine and live a long time, so look at the Greeks and the Italians, um, they don't just drink wine and go mental with it. Uh, they would drink a glass of wine and have a glass of water or they water the wine down by 50%. So I'm not suggesting we do that to a nice bottle of Grange, hey, Burger, but Mate, we, might, what's, what's um, we might maybe have a glass of wine and then back that up with a glass of water or be drinking water at the same time. Mm, that's absolutely true. Nice bottle of Wolf Blast is that what he's got there. Yeah, nice bottle of Wolf <laughs> Hey, David, what do you think in the sense of um, patients who maybe come to see patients for these sort of problems, if they see from a nutrition perspective, they may think, am I going to get a bag of supplements when I walk out of a consultation versus perhaps looking at food? Can you talk a bit about the food versus supplements uh, concept of management with these with headaches, yeah. for instance? Yeah, oh, absolutely, Berg, and I'm really passionate about it. Um, I get really quite um, disenfranchised by people, particularly practitioners, who try supplements first as opposed to trying to intervene with lifestyle and diet. And, and I think this is endemic, um, kind of in the you – know, I'll say it because, I mean, I'm a naturopath, but I see this more in the naturopathic fields where people are prescribed things before interventions have taken place with lifestyle um, and this doesn't apply to all practitioners, let me just say that. But I do see um, situations where integrated GPs and naturopaths use prescriptions of supplements to treat um, conditions like headaches and migraines um, in, in preferentially over a change in diet. And, and all that is that you're not actually addressing the cause. Like you might be actually going, oh, there's a nutritional insufficiency. You're addressing that, but you're not actually addressing the cause of the nutritional insufficiency in the first place. And um, and that really worries me. And then there's I mean, we've got to consider what a vitamin actually is and where vitamins and minerals actually come from. Um, and you know, in Australia, uh, vitamins and minerals uh, synthesis they're synthetic, so they're synthesised in chemical labs. You know, where people are wearing coats and masks, and um, and you know, in environments that. If you inhale these things, they can be quite dangerous for you. So we've got to, you know, treat these sorts of um, interventions the way that they should be, and that's cautiously and used appropriately, rather than actually just indiscriminately. And um, and food's the safest place to start. So a little bit of extra, let's say, it takes seven days or ten days to try and identify what the the food trigger might be or the food insufficiencies are. You know, that little bit of extra care that a practitioner might take just to get a patient to do a food diary, albeit the patient might go, give me a solution, give me something. You might just go, you know what, I want to save you 100 bucks. I want to save you three or $400. Um, just if you can keep me this food diary, we'll have a clearer understanding. And look, if the, if the patient's absolutely willing to try and identify what the problem is, then they'll keep a food diary. If they just want a quick fix, they might say, look, I'm not going to do the food diary, give me a tablet, um, in which case you know, you have to make the choice as to whether or not that's, that's the approach you're going to take. Excellent. What do you do in those circumstances? What would you say to a patient who's struggling to resolve a headache problem and they're in those two camps? Uh, the camp of, um, 
of not wanting to look at their diet or the camp of taking yeah. supplements? Well, both. So I'm thinking of practitioners in every field would have yep. this, would have people who just aren't motivated to help themselves. I know I had surgery last year and I, I had to have um, serious surgery and I had to have six months of rehab and I was operated on at the same time as another guy and he ended up in in-house rehabilitation because he refused to do his rehab, which I found astounding. And I just think there must be a lot of people, uh, practitioners must see this all the time, people saying, I'm not actually going to do what you want, I just want the quick fix. What do you yeah. say to those people? Well, you get that. Yeah. I get that in my practice. Yeah, I get that yeah. in my practice as well. And sometimes people aren't ready to be motivated, but I think that stems from a bigger problem, Kim, and I think, Berger, you'll agree with me on this one in that, People feel so disenfranchised, you know, disconnected with their ability to heal themselves. People don't know that they can actually heal themselves. They've forgotten. And many people have actually handed over um, the ability to heal themselves to somebody else who's going to heal them. And so they expect that um, they will be healed by somebody. You know, they go and pay the money and they're going to get fixed by that person with very little work done on their behalf. Um, but it comes down to languaging. It comes down to setting the expectation in the, early, in the early days. And, you know, if you set up the expectation that you're the practitioner, you're going to fix somebody, um, then that's what you would expect that your patients would be, you know, thinking you're going to be doing. But um, I, I really do try to um, set up the expectation that this is a two-way thing. Um, I'll do my part and they've got to do their part. Um, in the cases where they say, look, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do my part, um, if it seems impossible that I'm going to be able to help them out. Uh, I'm very clear in saying, look, I'm not going to be able to help you uh, if you're not going to be able to do everything you want. And very quickly that patient will move on and go find another practitioner who's prepared to do those sorts of things. But I'm not generally prepared to just, you know, chuck a bottle of supplements at somebody because they're not prepared to make lifestyle change. I I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's ethical. And and I think that patients deserve more than that. I think... I think, Damon, can you talk to about expectations? I think that's a real big component too from a patient's expectations and our expectations as practitioners. And sometimes that, that this don't match, do they? It's sort of uh, at different levels. And sometimes it can be educated that, that we can raise the bar to health prioritise certain aspects of uh, someone's uh, condition. But if the expectations are at different levels, I think that's where the disparity occurs. Is that sort of your experience? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I failed at that the other day. Like, I, you know, I'll talk about a, a particular person without mentioning names. Um, but I had a, a person come to see me um, only just the other day uh, who has an intermittent claudication issue uh, with type 2 diabetes complications and um, and is experiencing um, loss of, of power on walking. Um, and this has been going on for a number of years. And the type 2 diabetes it's it actually is poorly managed and it's now being uh, re-diagnosed as type 1 diabetes in other words it's type 2 diabetes with interdependence so there's going to be some kind of peripheral neuropathy and some kind of wasting away of muscles and um, insulin resistance and all these sorts of things which complicate it with spinal canal stenosis and all these kinds of things so Paul you can understand that this is actually now quite a big case this person's expectation of me is that within six visits um, there's going to be a change and um, and my and my inability to communicate that it, within six visits it's unlikely we're going to see a change. I would like to see a change in six visits, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, means that his expectation is that um, you know I should be able to get some kind of change in that period of time. The reality is that that's not going to be the case, and so they'll you know they'll have to be a referral to somebody outside of my practice 
um, most likely a surgical referral um, because um, this person's expectation is that it'll be fixed by somebody as opposed to, um, you know, taking on the responsibility of himself. So there's a very big uh, conversation to take place in the in the setting of the expectation of the outcome um, of, of what we, you know, expect to see with somebody's, you know, case and their prognosis. Um, and that comes down to, I suppose, an understanding of, of what the human body's capable of achieving um, and what the limitations are um, that we actually face with um, with the human body. You know, if, if degeneration has taken place and there's significant neurological degeneration, it, it takes, as you know, Paul, years for that to repair, mm. um, not a matter of, you know, four or five adjustments over two or three weeks. So it's um, – and you need to change your diet as well. That's not something you can just, you know, move away from. So – the, expect, the setting of expectations is very, very important. But I think that um, if we just look at television, for example, there's an expectation that if you've got a headache, you can go down to the local pharmacy. In fact, you don't even have to do that. You can just go to the milk bar or 7-Eleven. You can go to the petrol station these days. In fact, you could go to Coles um, and just walk down the, the medicines aisle and grab yourself some, you know, very, very powerful drugs. Um, to get rid of your headache. And it's become so normal that your symptoms can just be treated that people might mistake symptom treatment for the cure of something. Uh, and, and that in itself is a, is a massive failing on the part of educators in around the health profession, um, mainstream medicine, and probably also government, um, you know, to just let people take drugs indiscriminately um, without a, a proper explanation of what those drugs really do. I mean, I think we do that to our kids, to be honest. When you think about when your children have a pain or a sore or a whatever, they, you give them some Panadol or some Nurofen and it comes in liquid form and it's strawberry-flavoured and all of those things. And yeah. I, I actually had a conversation with my children just the other day because I – they said something. I was in pain. I had some kind of pain. And they said, oh, why don't you take some Panadol? And I said, I don't take Panadol. And they were like, why? And I said, because I don't need it. I, if I, You know, some things – really painful i've got to work out what that is and i just don't take the drugs to hide it um, but i've been as a parent giving it to them and they're older now they're 10 and 12 but as a parent when they were very little i did give it to them and only now am i starting to have those conversations with them about how powerful it is how much it can kill you um they were shocked to find out that it can kill you yeah. So it was it's a very interesting conversation and I think I understand why parents with small children give their children pain relief. It's very difficult to explain to a small child what's going on, but as they grow, I think it is a parent's responsibility to start having those conversations with their children so that children can grow up understanding it's not normal to take those medications. Well, I think that's a, a great point, Kim, mm. but I also think that uh, parents don't often know themselves. You know, it's, it's, if they didn't listen to Backchat, back they won't have heard this conversation before. And um, and the maternal child health care nurse isn't going to talk about those sorts of things because that's, you know, they haven't got the time for it and it's outside their bag and maybe it's not within their philosophy either. Because these, you know, the conversation we're having now is a philosophical conversation um, because you can quite easily just choose to manage symptoms and get on with life and, and never worry about trying to find the cause. You, you know, so many people would do that. In fact, if you look at Australia at the moment, 99% of all children in Australia don't eat enough vegetables. That's a huge statistic. Um, and so when, when you consider that that is a problem at the grassroots level of just vegetable consumption, uh, uh, um, 
you get out from that. If your philosophy is not strong enough in around nutrition, then the next layer is that you're going to be looking for someone else to fix a problem. And then the next layer is that if that doesn't work, you might go to you know, another person to intervene. So that might involve surgery or, or that might be you know, you know, wherever that goes, who knows where that goes. But it's got to start at a grassroots level and it's got to start with diet. And we really need to help people understand that diet is unbelievably important, but the health of the nervous system and the health of the spine is as important as brushing your teeth every single day. Um, you can't expect that your spine is going to be healthy um, if it's not moving. And you don't know if it's not moving um, until somebody checks it. It's like you don't know if you've got a cavity until you see the dentist. So uh, you, you've kind of got to get that check. Now, Dama, we're actually bringing you out at a seminar yeah, series. It is a, it is a philosophy. Fantastic. We're, we're bringing you out for a seminar series in March next year, uh, Neurologic Education. So you're going to be presenting some information on nutrition with headache. What can we expect in your opening address <laughs> on the Sunday morning? I think your first, you're on Sunday morning, uh, and the previous night is Mardi Gras night. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, good luck. Chief is being Jeez, like that a, is a tough a, gig, that one. That's very tough. That's right. Is that like the proper Mardi Gras? Is that like the That's Mardi right. Gras, it is. That's yes. a big deal. That's why we'll bring you up there. I'll have to make sure I get all my makeup off. That's right. And the glitter. <laughs> all the glitter. That's right. Um, you know, Berger, it's the most fascinating question that you asked that because you've been emailing me over the last few days. And wanting me to get all my stuff in, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that considers everything that I'm going to talk about. You know, you know that I ripped up my manuscript when I wrote the book because I went to Greece and I saw that the what they were eating, what they were doing, was inconsistent with what I was suggesting that people should be doing to live a long, healthy life. So, yeah, you know, my perspective on the way in which you know this particular presentation should go is likely to change. So, I'll definitely be looking at triggers um, for, you know, common types of headaches. We might even consider what these common types of headaches actually are, but um, but in a brief sense, how food can actually be evolved in that. Um, I'll look then at, uh, at, you know, maybe some digestive uh, links and digestive causes in around headache and, and migraine. Uh, we'll look at um, the possible um, micro and macronutrient deficiencies associated with those sorts of things and where that might actually lead to and, and what what other people might be experiencing. You know, we hear about gastrointestinal migraine, you know, quite frequently, you know, these days and, and that's as traumatic and as debilitating as a, you know, as a migraine or a classic migraine in somebody's head. So, you know, we'll talk about those sorts of things as well, but I'll give some, some really sage advice as to the way in which we might prescribe for these people. Um, and what will be the order of prescription? So we'll look at the food-based prescription. I think a food prescription is really important before we move on to a supplement-based prescription. And um, we'll look at some of the supplements that I use in my practice to assist people um, once they've got their diet sorted out. So we'll take people on that sort of journey. But I might look at some cases um, and, and just, you know, maybe just share some of those those experiences with people. And David, can you just talk about your Ikari experience and how that's changed your your thinking on longevity? And and for those who don't know about you, give, maybe give some context to what you've done with your career. You've travelled there as one of the blue zones the last couple of years, and and before going there and now leaving it, what's how has it changed your your thinking on on uh, longevity? Well, what happened, Paul, was I was um, I was about to turn forty. And so we're talking six years ago. I just turned 45 the other day. Um, and I was fearful of turning 40. And my friend Marcus Pierce, 
uh, said to me, Damo, why don't we do a podcast on aging? He sent me a DVD on uh, living to 100. Um, and then he sent me this other DVD, um, this one here. Yeah. I'm just getting it. It's called The 100 Plus Club. Uh, and so I watched these DVDs and and uh, and I was fascinated with it. I thought, oh, that's that's quite cool. And so Marcus and I started this podcast and we started interviewing people that were living a long time and we started interviewing people who had perspectives around ageing that, you know, might be different to what ours were. And I always thought that food was probably the secret, you know, that it was the one thing that you could actually do uh, that was a modifiable factor that would improve your longevity. Uh, but what I learned was that food was such an insignificant component of longevity that it was, well, we're talking in terms of priority, maybe number seven or eight on the priority list. You know, we're talking that purpose and engagement and movement um, and happiness and all of these sorts of things were way more um important from a longevity perspective than say changing your diet was or going gluten-free or giving up dairy or whatever else and so as a result of that uh the the instructions that i've written in the book and you know, how to live a healthy life or how those sorts of things that i put in my book just seemed to be not redundant but just kind of superfluous to what it was that i was trying to achieve and so i thought well how can i put a book out on this when yes the information is probably true and correct but it was out, out of my long, well, healthy life. And so much of that was to do with balance. So I, I recognised when we went to Greece, uh, um, Marcus and I went to Greece to live with a, a little village of Icarian people, uh, Greek people in, in Icaria, um, that their lifestyle consisted of um, a lot of happiness and low stress and movement and, and they weren't too concerned about food. And so that really shaped the way in which I view things. Now, obviously in Australia, we have a very sick society. And yes, we can pride ourselves on some of the best hospitals in the world and the great medical system and, and low disease, um, you know, transmittable communicable diseases. And we can pride ourselves on all of those, those sorts of interventions. But when it comes to, and from a longevity perspective, we do seem to live a long time. I think, you know, Australia has maybe the fifth, oldest population on the planet something like that but when it comes to the quality of life we slip down to about number 25 or something like we we actually have a very poor quality of life post um post retirement so uh people might live a long time but they're sick and they're taking drugs and they're having interventions and surgeries and and all these sorts of things and i don't think that's something to be proud of uh, um, i'd like to see that people do this better and so uh, for me i've had to change my conversations a little bit so you know i do see that we've, we've got a role to play in the management of disease and symptoms um, in and that we do have can change or influence people's philosophy to live a, a more holistic life. Well said, Damien, I mean, well said. Look, if I can ask you now, moving a bit from the topic here, but just what actually inspires you, Damien? I mean, you've, you know, I've got a great respect for you from the fact you've, you've crossed different industries over a long time period and you stay so current with your information. What makes you tick? What sort of is, was there any particular moments that have uh, really just sort of transformed you into the next sort of level of your thinking? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think the number one thing that makes me tick is, is you know, raising my son, Jackson. That was my number one thing that made me tick. And now he's 18. Um, I kind of go, well, what's the next thing? But I'm, I'm really um, passionate about seeing children live a really healthy life. Like, I love seeing children make great decisions. I get really sad when I see children making bad decisions. And when I say children, I'm talking like, you know, even up to 20-year-olds. So I'm thinking, oh, no, I made bad decisions at that age as well. But I just think that the 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 constant um, you know barrage of bad decisions that these kids have, have made probably as a result of you know insufficient education as they're growing up um, really affects the way in which they're going to live their life moving forward so I'm, I'm really committed to helping people you know alter that and change their perception on health and health care that's the reason why I keep on doing podcasts. Um, I've got the Muesli company. Like, I, you know, I'd, I love to do seminars and presentations. I go to schools and, and speak to these kids about their choices around health and well-being and philosophy around health and well-being. And, um, and it blows their mind. And, and I really love that. That that inspires me and gets me going. Um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty passionate about seeing children live well. Awesome. That's fantastic. You can come and speak to my children. (laughs) I think there's a lot of opportunity for children to make bad decisions these days, more so than there was when we were young. So I think it is a struggle for them and their parents all the time. So your work is definitely appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to do more of it and I want to work harder. And, you know, doing Triple M has been really good because it means that I, I get on the airwaves. Um, I'd love to have a TV show. That'd be unreal. If I could do a TV show and, and communicate to the kids about health philosophy, that'd be terrific. But the challenge with having a health philosophy is that it's something that you develop over time. It's not something you can just be taught. It's something that you've got to mm. kind of learn. Um, but that philosophies, but um, that comes from education and the availability of information. Well, you're building on concepts when you're developing a philosophy. Mm. And I guess we've had a lot of philosophical discussions today as well as functional discussions. We've covered a lot of ground. If you had to choose three take-home messages for what mm. we've discussed today with the huge breadth of uh, information that we've imparted, what would they be? Oh, I think the first thing would be to listen more to your symptoms. Don't ignore them. So I think mm-hmm. that's a really important thing. You know, the ignoring of symptoms is taking medication to just to dampen. You get a recurrent um, symptom that keeps on coming back, then don't keep on trying to ignore it. Investigate it. Um, I'd also suggest that people would look outside the box and consider that maybe it comes from multiple causes. So consider that you know your symptoms might might be neurological in their basis, or they could be nutritional in their the basis. So you can consider that, you know, maybe the gastrointestinal system is involved as well as the nervous system. Um, rather than there being a deficiency of paracetamol, consider there might be a deficiency of magnesium, for example. So that might be something to consider. And then maybe the third one would be to develop a health philosophy uh, because it's not something that people are taught to do. Um, you know, that most people don't ask questions about health. Uh, and so, you know, asking questions about health and asking different health providers or asking their friends about health, it's, it's almost something that is, is taboo these days to talk about your healthcare decisions. Um, but if you're able to ask your mates about, you know, what would you do if you had a headache, you know, and why would you do that? Or what would you do if you had such and such? Or who do you see to help you out with your neck pain or whatever else? If you ask more questions, then uh, you'll get better answers. Hey, Kim, what do you think? Oh, it's been absolutely fascinating. It's made me think about a lot of 
of different things that I do currently and ways in which it can change. The thing that's hit me the most tonight actually has been the uh, nutritional prescription because I think that's an absolutely genius way to present it to a patient because as a patient we do often think about, oh, I've got my prescription, I better take my tablets. It's it's absolutely perfect. Rather than saying you must eat more broccoli, it's actually yep. saying every day you need to do these things. This is your prescription. I love that. Oh, thanks, Kim. Look, can I just add to that? I, that's the one thing that I do do is prescribe a meal. So I'll prescribe breakfast. That's an easy thing for me to prescribe. I give people two options basically. And so that's that's what I do. And then I prescribe a lunch or I prescribe a dinner. I ask for their, their permission to say, okay, which ones are we going to change? We're definitely changing your breakfast. So what other one would you like to change? Would you like to change your lunch or your dinner? What's easiest for you? Inadvertently, most people go, oh, let's change dinner. I say, okay, well, when you were making dinner, these are the dinners that I want you to do over the next few weeks. Um, take the leftovers from dinner for lunch for the next day. And so I've actually changed their whole diet by prescribing two meals. That's all I've done. And uh, and, and so just by doing that, it's a really simple fix. Um, we've, we've ruled out heaps of stuff. We've moved out heaps of influence. And I've now got control over somebody's diet. Excellent. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, no, very good. And look, uh, the thing I love about Damien is he actually goes deep into layers. You know, he, he really asks the question why, of why things happen. Yeah. You know, it's um, talking about philosophies and function and uh, deeper sort of components versus looking at surface stuff. So thank you so much, Damien, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Berger. Thank you, Kim. I've really enjoyed it. I know I spoke a lot. Hopefully uh, you, you, your listeners enjoyed that. No. It was fascinating. Thank you. Excellent. If you want to find Damien, you can look at his website and you can actually see him at his clinic. Book online at vidalifestyles.com. That's V-I-D-A lifestyles.com. Uh, Damien mentioned that he also has a, a, a gluten-free breakfast range of cereals, which you can check at foragecereal.com. What's uh, your current range at the moment, Damo? Uh, well, we've gone sprouted now, Burger. Um, you've probably seen that. The new packaging actually now you know, has sprouted uh, pepitas and sp- sprouted sunflower seeds in the mix, uh, which is really nice. So we've got a muesli, a birch muesli, a porridge, and a paleo blend of, uh, of nuts and seeds and some fruits. And, and uh, not only are they good for you, they taste really good. We don't add any sugar and we don't add, we don't bake them so that all the nuts and seeds are raw, which I think is really important. So you get all the essential macronutrients, all the essential micronutrients that are there in their natural state. Um, and uh, you only really get addicted to the goodness rather than actually addicted to the sweetness. Fantastic. Excellent. And as I alluded to earlier, Dame is a speaker at the Neurology Education Seminar, Integrative Therapies for Headache and Migraine ther- Migraines from the 1st to the 3rd of March 2019 at CQU at 400 Kent Street, and more information can be detailed at www.neurologiceducation.com.au. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash backchatpodcast, where all relevant website links of today's show will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you one thought, be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Back Chat Podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.